British intelligence to help French capture the Charlie Hebdo assassins. U.S. Air Force pulls out of Mildenhall. Russia rethinks how to use its military. Do we need to rethink ours? This is a problem when you've got to confront someone who believes in wielding big sticks and making a noise. You need to have a big stick and speak to him very quietly, and then things calm down. If you've got no stick at all, then you're not well placed. Security is being stepped up at Britain's ports because of yesterday's terror attack in Paris. Twelve people were killed by gunmen at the offices of the satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo. The government's emergency committee COBRA met this morning to discuss its implications in the UK. Our reporter James Hurst has spoken to the former Liberal Democrat leader Simingus Campbell who sits on the Intelligence and Security Committee. This is a shameful event. It's an event in which, without compunction, deliberately, people were called out by name and shot dead. It just emphasises the fact that journalists in particular are now in the front line. And journalists expressing themselves using freedom of expression, using the right to free speech, which is fundamental to our country, are even more at risk than might have been expected. Of course, your viewers and listeners will know all about risk, and the Intelligence Committee, of which I'm a member, has recently produced a report in relation to the death of Lee Rigby, and your viewers and listeners will have had to live with that kind of risk for a very long time already. How concerned should we be in the United Kingdom seeing something like this in a capital city just across the channel from us? Well, of course, it could happen here. I mean, it would be foolish to deny that. But what we've got to do is to take every precaution we can, but to remember that it is not possible in a free society to provide absolute 100% security. There will always be risks attached to a free society. The one thing we must ensure, though, is that we don't allow these risks or events of the kind we're discussing to stand in the way of the fundamental principle of freedom, and freedom of expression. That is what... Uh, people like yourself and myself are concerned about when we go on the airwaves. And, of course, it's what many of your viewers and listeners are committed to protecting because of their service in the armed forces. Should we be considering raising the UK's terror threat level at this stage? The threat level, as I understand it, is the immediately below the most severe. That's a matter of judgment, and I don't think it would be right for me or indeed anyone else uh, to speculate about that because it depends upon the quality of intelligence which is currently available to those who have to make that decision. But the one point I would add, which I think is of some importance, is this, that in the last 12 months all three of the security services in the United Kingdom have gone out of their way to talk about the fact that we have a number of plots which are already under surveillance and in addition to that we have the risk of several hundred people, British passport holders, coming back from abroad uh, having learned the trade of terrorism, upon whom we've got to keep a particularly close eye. Samingus Campbell speaking to James Hurst. Well, I'm joined as usual by BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, what do you make of all of this? What is necessary is the two brothers who seem to be the key in the operation, uh, Syed Kuchai and uh, Sharif Kuchai. The importance of that and why British intelligence has offered its services to the French is they don't want any sharpshooting Frenchmen 
trying to kill them. They've got to capture them. They need to interrogate them. They want to know who organised this, who trained them, who ordered this particular hit, the names and ambitions in France of the organisation that they must have for themselves. These are not just, you know, these are not sort of uh, lone sort of shooters. This is part of a bigger or, uh, operation, and they want to see if, it's, if, if, it's, if it crosses the channel. I, I'm supposing that anybody who would commit this kind of atrocity is not intending to, to be caught alive. That's why it's important that they manage to capture them, because all the odds are they want to take on the police and become even more heroes, and they don't see any future. One guy supposedly, supposedly has given himself up who might be involved in it, but it may be he gave himself up because he wanted to clear his name because he wasn't involved in it, but he actually knows, knows the people. The importance now is to find out the depth of this organisation. When you look at what happened you will see it was a trained organisation, it was a trained operation, it was rehearsed, they knew exactly what they were doing, it wasn't just a casual in the street, let's go and hit those guys. Now you heard Samias Campbell there saying this kind of thing could happen in Britain, do you think so too? Most certainly could happen in Britain. Um, and that, again, is one of the reasons that the Prime Minister, after the COBRA meeting this morning, uh, one of the reasons the Prime Minister um, got in touch with Paris and said, look, our people have already been in touch with you informally, but they're yours. We will give you every help, every information that we can get. And through GCHQ, also through uh, people on the ground with human intelligence, electronic, electronic intelligence, there may be something that they can do. They were warned, the French were warned, that this sort of attack was going to happen, and they were warned last October. Looking ahead, I mean, a lot of the talk today is this being a war on freedom, a war on dem democracy, obviously implications for for the homeland security in Britain, for our own security forces. What, what about the military? Does this have any implications for them? It has a great deal of in, uh, implications for, for the British military, especially in the future. Well, let's, th let's think long term. Let's not just think in the last sort of 48 hours. In the long term, a large part of the of the British military as it is with certain other countries, certainly the, the Netherlands and the, more Germany, are concerned with what we would call homeland security. And the military have this fundamental sort of job to do, and it's not just sort of going off to Africa or, or, to, the, or, or to the Middle East. So they'll be watching, and the intelligence corps, for example, um, will be running operations on this even now. They'll be keeping log what is happening, what is our involvement, how can we help... Um, and it's not going to it's not going to get any less. This is just one example. Mm. Let's not just think of the forty eight hours. Apart from the attack itself, the concerns is is the polarization this might create within societies. And we're seeing in Germany already the rise of a group called Padiga. Just tell us a little bit about who they are and what they're doing. Well basically what you've got in, in, in Germany is people who are saying you must allow us, we, the Islamists to have our own voice, to have our place in society. You've got the other groups that are saying, no, this is not, this is not true. You, you, cannot, you cannot break the rules. You cannot sort of start to impose your own, uh, your own ideas on, on how you should be treated. We are Germans. Forget all the labels. We are all Germans. Now, what's interesting is that it's happening in Germany. And Germany, as you know, has a, a, a great sort of history of guest workers, for example, and they feel, they feel right up at, uh, at, at the level of Merkel, they feel vulnerable to mm. the possibilities of other groups starting to do exactly what we've seen uh, in Paris. Christopher, stay with us. Sit Rep with Kate Chabot.
Still to come, Russia rethinks how to use its military and we look ahead to this year's big anniversaries and commemorations, including Gallipoli. The United States is pulling out of RAF Mildenhall, its largest air base in the UK. Uh, Christopher, this follows a review of US forces in Europe. Yeah, the United States is going through the similar sort of thing that the United Kingdom government and the Ministry of Defence has to go through and say, look, we're spending this amount of money, we haven't got that amount of money in future. What are we going to do? It's, it's consolidating a lot of its operations post-Afghanistan, although the United States is still in Afghanistan in a big way, and Iraq. And they're, they're, they're concentrating what you have in somewhere like Mildenhall. Mildenhall is basically United States uh, Special Forces Air Force, Air Forces and, most importantly, the air-to-air refuelling tankers. These are the people that keep the reconnaissance aircraft, the fighter bombers, etc., in land at long uh, in the air at long distances. Very important. That's going to go. Um, the up at uh, up, up at the 48th Fighter Wing, the so-called Liberty uh, uh, Liberty Wing. Um, the Americans are going to put around about 2020 two squadrons of F-35s. So it's still going to be here. It's also going to close down its its listening posts, its electronic intelligence listening listening posts. At um, for example, they've got to keep some of the stuff here, but they're going to take some of it to Germany. But the main intelligence gathering electronic will still remain in England. Has anything uh, any of this got something to do with Russia's actions in Ukraine? I don't think so, because it is a long-term thing that the Pentagon's been looking at now for the past 18 months. I mean, if you think what Putin might be doing, and, you know, we can talk about this later, but Putin's rethinking how the, the, the Russian military is going to be handling itself and where it's <coughs> going to be uh, operating in, in the future. The important thing is the Americans are going to have to do this anyway. And, in fact, Mildenhall is, not a, is a very good example where you sort of get out, but it's all with an operational headquarters, say, at Ramstein, and that be, becomes extraordinarily important. What becomes interesting, don't forget these places, uh, Lake and Heath, where the fighter wing will, will be enhanced, uh, Alconbury, Molesworth, um, but Mildenhall especially. They're RAF bases. Interesting what the RAF got to do with them because they haven't got, they haven't got any kit they want to put in them. Uh, housing estate, airport, or even, irony, bring some of the soldiers that are coming back from Germany over between now and 2020, make nice accommodation for them. Mm. America's top general in Europe has spoken about out about Britain's defence cuts, worried that the UK will drop below the 2% NATO spending target, something that the Prime Minister wouldn't be drawn upon, uh, or certainly said, wouldn't say uh, that, that we would not drop below that 2% in a recent interview. How do, what, how, what bearing does that have on our relations with America? I don't think at this stage much with America, um, because in, in fact Britain probably does more about its defence spending as a percentage of GDP than any other country in, 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 in NATO Europe. I think what they do recognise is that the United Kingdom is now going to go uh, after the election through um, two big decision makes. One is the defence review, which it's got to have, and there won't be as much money. And the second part is what it's going to be doing with Trident. That What it's going to be doing with Trident uh, or Vanguard replacement is probably far more interest to the Americans than our defence budgeting, which they recognise uh, will probably be about as high as you can get. Let's talk about Russia now. President Putin has been busy over the Christmas break. On Boxing Day, he signed a new version of Russia's military doctrine. The document promotes the use of Russia's conventional non-nuclear forces as a deterrent. It also identifies new threats. Our reporter Tim Cooper has been speaking about this to the former First Sea Lord Admiral Lord West. Putin now has gone too far. Um, he, he's really not paying enough attention to 
uh, agreements and world order. And what worries me a huge amount is that he's starting to uh, flex what I call nuclear muscles. He, he sees nuclear as very, very important because he thinks the West or NATO has a preponderance in conventional weapons, which is amusing because I think actually uh, we're not doing that well on conventional weapons. But that's how he perceives it. Therefore, he actually thinks there is a case for having short-range missiles um, in case there were ever a war. And so clearly he thinks you could use nuclear weapons in a war. I find that very, very worrying indeed. And he's put a lot of investment, of course, into his nuclear part of his defence. There's a, a brand new ballistic missile submarine uh, is, is, is now running and several are on order and being built. He's got some new attack submarines. He's created a new um, cruise missile, a nuclear cruise missile, which I think the Americans perceive as him breaking the INF on that. And certainly it's very close to breaking the INF. It's, it's, it's of concern. Um, these new submarines are very, very quiet. Historically, they've deployed um, submarines into the Atlantic, which was quite worrying for us because of our Trident patrols and very worrying for the Americans because as soon as you've got something close to America, their warning times drop. And these submarines now are much, much quieter and our ability to track them and find them is not as good as it was, although luckily we are producing in this country the new uh, astute-class submarines, which are very, very good indeed. But all of these things are very worrying, I think, um, and the Americans are starting to slightly respond to this. In terms of Britain's response, if any, to, to all of this, um, we've been through a period of austerity both countrywide and within the military. Are we well-placed to be able to respond to whatever might happen next in terms of Russia? Well, I think the, the, the issue is that it, you know, Russia has not been using what one called the old conventional methods of uh, attacking and invading. And indeed, if she had... If she did something like that in the Baltic states, then it would be a war because of Article 5. She's much more using subversion and using her populations in those countries and, and using cyber and doing all of these sorts of things. And I don't think NATO has got their mind round yet how to counter those particular sorts of attack. Now, on top of the ability to counter that, you do need conventional forces. And there is no doubt in my mind that the European parts of NATO have not been spending enough on their conventional armaments. Uh, all of them I mean, are pretty bad, actually. Britain and France are probably better than the others, but even in our countries now, particularly in Britain, since 2010, we've cut defence by 14%. That's a lot. Uh, and I believe we, you know, it's not crying wolf, we're getting to the stage where we are going to lose real capabilities and this is a problem when you've got to confront someone who believes in wielding big sticks and making a noise. You need to have a big stick and speak to him very quietly and then things calm down. If you've got no stick at all, then you're not well placed. That was Admiral Lord West speaking to our reporter, Tim Cooper. Uh, Christopher Lee, is our stick big enough? Um, at the moment, um, the sort of the, the ship on British waters defence comes to one frigate. Uh, it's not a very big stick, is it? Um, what he's thinking about, though, is the way the Russians are starting to do more probes into the UK to see, for example, what the quick reaction alert times are on us. But also the Russian Navy. Three, uh, four, four fleets, Northern Fleet, Baltic Fleet, Black Sea, and the Tiki Flot, the, uh, the Pacific Fleet based in uh, Vladivostok. And that is where the development of these uh, submarines is going to be uh, going to be foremost, and that's what's bothering Admiral West at the moment. This is BFBS. Sit rep.
Anyone fancy joining the RAF? What does it take for the RAF to respond to a humanitarian crisis? It takes air traffic controllers, engineers, RAF regiment gunners, aerospace battle managers, medics, chefs, full-timers, spare-timers, and you. Find your role in the RAF as a full-time regular or a spare-time reservist. Search RAF Recruitment now. That was the latest RAF recruitment television advert. There's a new one for the Royal Navy and the Army one will be on our screens very soon. So could 2015 be the year we see an improvement in recruiting figures, particularly for the Reserve Forces? Well, Julian Brazier is the Minister for the Reserves and joins me now. Hello to you, Julian. Good afternoon, Kate. Are you hoping for big things in 2015? Yes, um... The outlook for the reserves is really excellent with all the opportunities that we've got for people to uh, go off and train alongside their regular counterparts, either informed bodies or as individuals. We have a huge number of overseas exercises involving reservists. Uh, I've just seen off um, a party of reservists travelling with regular colleagues to uh, deal with the crisis uh, in Sierra Leone. In fact, the senior nursing officer, uh, effectively the commander in the red zone uh, in Sierra Leone, is currently a reserve lieutenant colonel. Uh, my local unit, uh, 3rd Battalion, President of Wales Royal Regiment, sending a form platoon to Afghanistan uh, with their paired regular regiment, one Royal Anglian uh, next month. It's all happening. Christopher Lee, it's all rosy in the reserves. It isn't, is it really? You see, when Liam Fox decided that that was a good way to go, it was in July 2011, he was talking about the army having 70% regular, 30% reserves. To get that 30% post-Afghanistan it's almost impossible the way that the army is thinking at the, at the moment. Only you have to listen to what General Horton, the chief of defence staff, said just before Christmas in his RUSI lecture. Going to have to rethink how we get to that figure that he wants, or was originally wanted for the future reserve, 20. All right, Julian Brazier, what are the latest figures then? Well, the latest uh, quarter um, showed a level of recruiting that was actually almost double the equivalent quarter last year. The year to date, we start the recruiting year in April the 1st, the year to date is running at 62% ahead of last year. Last year was a poor year, it represented the bottom. Numbers are now slowly rebuilding. Um, I'm not allowed to reveal um, provisional figures, but the quarter that we'll be announcing in February will be very substantially ahead of uh, the quarter that we, the last quarter we've advanced. It Having hit bottom, after 15 years of continuous decline in reserve numbers, we've stabilised and numbers are now growing again. You say that, but you have people like the Shadow Defence Secretary Vernon Coker saying the signing up for reservists is, is shocking. Well, um, Vernon's entitled to his point of view, but the plain fact is that the recruiting numbers are going up very fast. Uh, I've I just said that the last quarter we've reported on, the quarter that ended in September, was running at almost exactly double 
the rate, the equivalent period uh, last year. Um, and the next quarter will be even better than that. Christopher, um, off-the-record conversations I've had some with people I won't name who have, have been high positions in the military have certainly expressed d- doubt over the ability to, to replace the cuts in the armed forces with reservists. Uh, what do you know about the feeling among people serving today? Well, there you have it with, with the Chief of the Defence Staff who says, and he's saying it quite openly, we're going to have to rethink how we do this. Uh, Because if you're trying to get the numbers they're talking about, and originally we were talking about getting perhaps another 15,000, things have changed dramatically since the the, um, future reserve uh, forces idea came up in 2011. It's a long, long time ago. All sorts of circumstances, including military, including uh, economic circumstances in the country, have changed. Yes, you can get more reservists, but you cannot any longer, from everything the Chief of Defence Staff is saying, and also his people are saying, you cannot get them to replace the forces, the regular forces they expected. So, Julian Brazier, is the Chief of Defence Staff wrong? No, uh, Christopher Lee has just misunderstood him. Uh, the Chief of Defence Staff chaired the commission which set, set forward the plan. I served on it under him. Uh, I've read his address to the RUSI. It's an absolutely excellent address and I would underpin every part of it. And he makes the, all, the, all of the main points that need to be made on reserves, that they will help us rebuild the crucial link which has been so badly sundered over the last few years between the regular forces and the public, uh, that they are... Um, needed in order to bring in skills from the civilian world which we can't afford to keep in the military um, and that you need to have reserves for critical mass. Um, if he reads what the Chief for the General Staff has said in a, in a recent article in the last week or so uh, in Army Reserve Quarterly, he expands on exactly the same points. There's one message, we need reserves. There's just one further point I want to pick up from Christopher. Um, he conflates the reduction in regular numbers with the expansion in reserves. Now, many of us, I've got a long record as a backbencher of fighting for more defence spending, would have liked to have seen more money in defence. We are where we are. The fact is that 30,000 reservists is only equivalent to 6,000 regulars in cost, not 20,000. Christopher, uh, um, uh, there has always been this talk from the MOD and the line has been held, there will never be a plan B in terms of of changing this idea to, to boost the forces with reservists. Uh, Julian, do you think that 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 is the case then, that everything's on track and it will all be okay? The recruiting came off track in the first year or so for a whole variety of reasons which are now very public, of blockages in the system. We removed those blockages uh, between April and the autumn of last year and recruiting is now going much better. Every quarter is moving onwards. The answer to your question is yes. You're confident? Yes. Julian Brazier, thank you very much for your time. There seemed no shortage of recruits a hundred years ago to fight during one of the most infamous campaigns of the First World War, the Eight Months Campaign at Gallipoli. Now, what part of today's modern Turkey is widely seen as a major Allied failure. Tens of thousands of Australians and New Zealanders were deployed and commemorations will be held in April this year to mark the centenary of that campaign. Well, I'm joined by Australian historian Peter Fitzsimons, whose new book, Gallipoli, has just been published in the UK. Welcome to you, Peter. Just remind us briefly about the history All of this right. campaign. Okay, thank you for having me on your show. I'm having a lovely time. If That's I... good to know. <laughs> we haven't even started yet. <laughs> Look, if I could write it on my thumbnail to give a quick summation, basically the war broke out for the first time 
you had major armies with machine guns. When machine guns were firing, there was only one thing to do, it was to dig. So you had trench warfare break out in France into the southern part of Belgium, and it was an attrition rate, something shocking. Three and a half thousand people a week, a week going down, British, British people going down to machine guns. It was appalling. So it went from early August of 14, it went into, into 1915, and on the 13th of January, meeting of the War Council, it's depressing, it's gone for eight hours. Where are we going to get new divisions? Where are we going to get new soldiers? How are we going to pay for it all? Winston Churchill... Boss of the Imperial Fleet stands up and says, here's the plan. We've got the Imperial Fleet. Basically, we haven't had a loss in 100 years. We'll put it up against the Islamic world that hasn't had a win in 100 years. I'm paraphrasing, not, not exact words, but that's the essence of it. We've got this fabulous power of the Imperial and Fleet. And the target was. Yes. So we'll send it up the Dardanelles, that narrow passageway of water. We'll only have to wave the Union Jack a few times. They'll give up. If they don't give up, we'll lob some shells into Constantinople. Brilliant plan. And the whole room lifts up, lifts up. What a brilliant idea. Winston Churchill being Winston Churchill couldn't wait. Mm. And so third, I think it was the 3rd of Feb that he... Uh, Gives the gives them a whiff of the grape, as it were. The Imperial fleet lobs a few shells at the at the forts that guard the Dardanelles, and the Turks go. Well, they really are coming. On the nineteenth of March of nineteen fifteen, the Imperial fleet charges up the Dardanelles. They lose three ships. The French lose one. So the, here is the British Empire right on the edge of an historic humiliation. The only way they can see forward to get to to quell the forts is to land one hundred and fifty thousand men. So they land at Anzac Cove, which is on the left hand side of the of the peninsula on the western side of the peninsula they land the australians and the new zealanders on the tip at cape Helles, they land the brits it is a disaster it is a catastrophe the campaign goes on for eight months australia loses nine thousand soldiers killed kiwis lose two thousand and you brits thirty five thousand of your men of your mm. brave men went to their graves there and then the turks who fought very bravely against them ninety thousand killed you, you. This has very much been this campaign a bit of a obs- personal obsession for you, hasn't it? Well, it's in as an Australian. I took it with my mother's milk. It, mm. it is. It really is. A, 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 I grew up with it. And b- both of my parents fought in the Second World War. Served. Dad. Dad was at El Alamein. Mum. Mum was a physiotherapist with the army. And yet, I never had the brains to ask them about that before they died. Why? Because they weren't at Gallipoli. Gallipoli is in our psyche. Many would say way too much in our psyche. In this, I tried to get to the bottom of what it was all about, why it was so important. Which many people have tried to do, mm. and there have been many books on the subject. What's different about yours? Well, I always say it hasn't been done until I've done it, Kate. And What's what, different about well, your, one thing is, Well, one thing is, look, serious historians, of whom I don't particularly number myself, I am more a historian than a historian. Well, sometimes they don't like my style. So my style is I do not want to be a dull history lecturer on a wet Wednesday afternoon droning on and lecturing and then this and then this. I want my stuff to feel like a novel, to put the reader in the moment. I put it in the present tense, but I back it up with 2,000 footnotes from letters and diaries and contemporaneous accounts to make the story live and breathe to make the reader feel like they're there. My assumption at the beginning is I like to use my own ignorance as a tool because when I first started doing military books, to my shame, I didn't Mm. know how many in a division, how many in a platoon, how many in a company, so I put the building blocks of the account in there so I don't assume knowledge on the part of my readers. Of course, the campaign hugely important. As you said, you are brought up with it, really, in modern-day Australia, particularly for young people, many of them who travel for Anzac Day to commemorate that. This year um, is incredibly important. There's even a ballot for it, isn't it, Mm. to be able to go. 
Why is it so important? Well, Australia had the tragically absurd notion at the beginning of 100 years ago that we were not a proper nation until we had shed blood, both both our own and others of our enemies for the service of the British Empire. And I, I'm not, I don't say that lightly. Uh, it really was this thing that you, you're... Uh, uh, well, our Prime Minister early on in that war, he said we will fight for Great Britain to the last man and the last shilling, and we mm. just about bloody well did. And when the news came through of what had happened at the Dardanelles, our greatest poet, and Banjo Patterson, wrote a poem of exultation where mm. he said, The metal that a nation shows is proved through shot and steel, and now we know what nations know and um, feel what nations feel. So that was the idea. You're not a nation until you've shed blood. At Dardanelles, at Gallipoli, we shed blood, and the feeling was our blokes did well, and that is why it was the first achievement as a nation. The colonies had come together 15 years before, but this time we bloody you, well showed you them. And you will be there, won't you, for the 100th anniversary? I will be there representing my newspaper, the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, and working in France you were yesterday, obviously mm. when the news came in of this awful yeah. uh, atrocity, the killings... Mm. Um, what were you doing and how... Well, I was how... tramping the fields of the Western Front at Pozier and Framel. I came back, I got, got to Gardenor at about 7 o'clock last night. I knew nothing about it. And then I saw men with guns, you know, like serious men with guns, soldiers, patrolling. And then I asked the taxi driver, what's going on? And I found out. So my, my wife and I, we, we went to Place de la République last night. Mm. It was very impressive. The stoicism of the French is extraordinary. All right, Peter Fitzsimons, thank you for your time. Peter Fitzsimons, author of Gallipoli, thanks for joining us today. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again the same time next week. Bye-bye for now. Sports and music Music. for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. In the rain, France stands silent.